So, Jesus, we ask that you would teach us from your word, Lord. Help us to leave here more focused on you. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, hello, 945. Great to have all of you here. 11 o'clock, thank you for watching us, middle schoolers, high schoolers. Uh, it is great to have all of you here. If you're looking for a seat, there's some up front. Um, over the course of the next 10 weeks, why is it that there's always seats up front, right? Like, I really, I would think you'd want to be closer to all of this. Um, over the next uh, 10 weeks, we're going to preach through the entire Bible in 10 weeks and kind of how it applies to our lives. Because through Scripture, Jesus gives us power and victory and hope and joy. So if you come for the next 10 weeks every S Sunday, you will hear the entire story of the Bible. And to start, I want to do something I've never done before, I will probably never do again. And that is to re-preach a version of a sermon I did nine years ago. Now, I've made some changes, and it's not quite exactly the same. But the story of the Bible hasn't changed that much in nine years, so it's a lot the same. But, but my, yeah, because if it's not, that's called heresy. Um, but my sermon review team, they told me it was okay that I could re-preach this sermon because nobody remembers my sermons anyway. So they meant it in a good way. So I'm going to tell you the whole story of the Bible in one sermon. Because when you understand it as one consistent story from beginning, middle, has a beginning, a middle, and an end, it has a whole lot more power. And, and, and you can apply it more to your life. And it makes it much easier to just read any part of the Bible when you understand the entire story. And I'm going to spend more time kind of in Genesis and Exodus, and then we'll pick up the pace. So don't worry, you're getting out of here on time. You will beat the Baptist to brunch. Um, I want to start by showing a clip from a movie called Blood Diamond uh, about the illegal diamond trade in Sierra Leone, Africa, and where, where the rebel army would trade diamonds in exchange for guns. They'd also kidnap kids as young as seven or eight, put them in the army, kind of convince them to do things like kill people. And the movie is about a father whose son is kidnapped by this rebel army and kind of convinced to do bad things. And the father spends the entire movie pursuing him and trying to get his son back. And he's assisted by Leonardo DiCaprio, who says that in exchange for a rare diamond that the father has found and hidden, he'll help the father find his son. And the scene that I'm going to show you is when the father finally does catch up with his son. It had better be there, huh? Yes, yes. You got it. Have you got it, huh? Yes, got it. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Solomon. Dear, what are you doing? Dear! Nyangbe, Nyangbe, what are you doing? Bella, dear Avanti. Of the proud Mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Yanda. And you do, baby.
cows wait for you. And Babu, the wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things, but you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. Good scene. So you have a, a father whose son is kidnapped, captured by the enemy, convinced to do terrible things. The father sets out, sets out to find his son and face death even at the hands of the very son he came to save. Does that story sound familiar to you? That clip is the Bible in two minutes. A father who will stop at nothing to be reunited with his daughters and with his sons. And when the father finds us, he calls us by name, reminds us of who we really are before the enemy convinced us to do bad things. And he says, I love you and I have come after you to take you home to be with me. The whole Bible can be summed up in four words. God never gives up. And it starts in the beginning when out of love, God creates everything. And the pinnacle of that creation is human beings. And God says you can eat of any tree in this garden, but there's one that will hurt you, so stay away from it. But, but he was trying to help them thrive. He was just trying to help them have a good life. But the enemy, Satan, comes and lies to them, says the father is trying to keep them from reaching their full potential. So they eat it. They buy the lie. They eat the forbidden fruit, and they get what they want, the knowledge of good and evil. Good lost and evil gained. And as soon as Adam and Eve disobey God, they start to bicker and argue. And couples, married couples, have been bickering ever since. You can blame it on Adam and Eve. I have a friend who's, who's working on being a better husband and being a better listener as a husband. And he says, I've learned one thing. What is it now does not count as compassionate listening. So then God comes to Adam and Eve and he says, what happens? And Adam, in just in like the, the mother of all cop-outs, Adam says, well, you know, God, the woman that you made, I told you maybe it wasn't a good idea to make a woman, but you made a woman, right? And you gave her to me and she gave me the apple, see? And well, okay, I guess I kind of sort of ate it-ish. So he takes his punishment like a man. He blames his wife. Showing that we just cannot admit when we mess up. Well, then they run away from God and they hide. And human beings have been running and hiding from God ever since. But God never gives up. So he pursues them and he makes clothes for them. Showing that even in their rebellion, he provides for them. And he promises that from them will come a man who will make it all right again. They go on to have kids, turn out worse than they did. Cain kills his brother Abel and it's all downhill from there. Descendants murder each other, slaughter their children in pagan rituals, oppress, on and on. But God never gives up. So he comes up with a plan. Right? He will give his message that he is our father who loves us to one man and named Abraham and his descendants who will become the nation of Israel. 
So around 2000 BC, God says to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation, nation of Israel. So that's the blessing. That's the blessing. But it's not just blessing for blessing's sake. No, 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 no. There's a so that to this blessing. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In other words, Abraham and his descendants, Israel, they aren't just blessed for their own sakes. They have a job to spread the good news of God's love to everyone in the world and to create a new society grounded in justice and mercy and love and spread a better way of living around the whole world. So God narrows the scope of his salvation plan to a few thousand square miles in southwest Asia. So why does God do it this way? Why one man, one family, one nation? Why? One word, relationship. Because, see, God is different than every other God and every other relig religion in that he seeks relationship with us. So he works relationally through his people rather than write his message in the sky. This is also a strategic choice. Abraham lived in the Fertile Crescent, which is where civilization began, and most importantly, writing, so that God's, the, the, God's message could be recorded. Israel is also located uh, at the intersection of three trade routes for three continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. So the good news about God could spread more easily. It was a very strategic choice. And God promises them that they're going to have a baby. Even though at the time Abraham is 100 and his wife Sarah is 90, they're still going to have a baby, which sounds terrible to me. But they thought it was a good idea and that's what matters, right? They're going to have a baby and Medicare is going to pay for it. <laughs> so Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons from whom the nation of Israel emerges, divided into 12 tribes named after those sons. But here's the twist. They're terrible people. Like they're just horrible people, right? They fight all the time, commit incest, rape, attempted fratricide, murder. They're enmeshed, codependent, passive-aggressive, and borderline psychotic. And these are the people God picks for his special mission to the world. And it just shows you do not want God as your HR guy because he hires all the wrong people. <laughs> Which means he can use even you. And he can use even me. They aren't good people, but they're God's people. And that's the point. Well, their family dysfunction kind of reaches its climax when Joseph's brothers decide to, uh, when the brothers, the 12 sons, decide to murder their little brother Joseph and decide instead to sell him into slavery in Egypt. But God brings good out of it. Pharaoh is impressed by Joseph, makes him prime minister of Egypt. When a famine happens, Joseph guides Israel through or Egypt through unscathed. Meanwhile, his brothers come to Egypt to get food because they're starving. They're reconciled with Joseph, and they all move to Egypt where they are well cared for, proving that no matter what happens, God can bring good out of evil. What problem are you facing? It can't possibly be worse than having your brothers try to kill you and then sell you into slavery. Has that happened to any of you lately? Okay, you're doing better than Joseph. And if God can bring good even out of that, he can bring good out of whatever you face. Because God never gives up. Well, generations come and go, they multiply. A new king arises in Egypt that didn't know Joseph. And he's afraid of their growing numbers, so he decides to make them slaves. And for 400 years, God seems silent. No prophets, no leaders, while his special people languish in slavery. But God never gives up. 
So throughout those 400 years, God still had relationship with individual people, supporting them, encouraging them, empowering them. And then one day, when Pharaoh gave an order that all Jewish male babies should be thrown into the Nile, a Jewish woman puts her son in a basket and sends him down the river, where he's discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, grows up in Pharaoh's court. He, he sees an Egyptian beating his fellow Israelites, so he kills the Egyptian, runs away to the desert, where he encounters God in the form of a burning bush who tells him to go back and deliver his people from slavery. Moses then comes up with two and a half chapters of excuses why he can't do it. Right, oh, they won't listen to me, I don't talk good. Finally he just says, oh, send someone else. And then the Bible says, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Which can't be a good thing, right? And the reason is because God loved Moses and knew that the desire of Moses' heart was to free his people. That's why he killed that Egyptian beating that Jewish man. What is God telling you to do? Give up some behavior? Serve in some way? Forgive someone? God knows your heart better than you do. God knows the longings of your heart even better than you do. And he says, trust me, I am trying to give you joy. So Moses goes back to Egypt. Pharaoh won't let the people go. Ten plagues convince him otherwise. But then just as they're leaving... Pharaoh changes his mind, pursues the Israelites to the Red Sea with his army, and it looks like it is over for God's special people. But God never gives up. So with Israel up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army just charging right at him, God does this kind of cosmic sneeze and divides the waters in two. They walk through on dry ground, and Pharaoh's army is drowned. Proving one thing very conclusively, God loves a cliffhanger. Right, like this is just great script writing, right? Like this is just awesome script. The problem is I don't like cliffhangers. I want things to be easy. I want things to be calm. But what a day for Moses, right? Like he could have gone home that night and Mrs. Moses might have said, how was your day, dear? And he would have said, you know, got chased by Pharaoh's army, divided the Red Sea in two, delivered God's people, you know. And she would have said, that's nice, dear. Did you pick up the milk on your way home? God gave Moses this really cool day. But then just one chapter later, one chapter later, the people start to whine and complain because they don't have any water. Showing that we are a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately-God kind of people. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you divided the Red Sea in two, but what have you, that was yesterday. What have you done for me today, God? You ever do that? Of course you do. I do. We all do that, right? The God who has been faithful in the past will surely be faithful again because God never gives up. So God sends them water. He sends them food called manna. Still they complain. All we have to eat is this stupid manna. When we were in Egypt, we had garlic and we had onions. Okay, we were slaves, but we had garlic. And God says, Oive, what am I going to do with these people? Right? The Oive, by the way, is actually in the Hebrew. They'll never be able to conquer the promised land with this kind of slave mentality. So he makes them wander in the desert for 40 years until all the whiners die. But it's not wasted time because as they wander, they develop a legal system, a government, an army. Things they didn't need as slaves, but they're going to need to be a nation. Where do you feel like you're wandering, waiting? It's not wasted time. God is developing in you the things you're going to need for your future as you wait, as you wander. And of all the things they got in the desert, the most important was God's law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all the laws in Leviticus. And the law isn't there to keep us from having fun. It's there to help us to live to our fullest potential. And to form an alternative society that lives a better story, grounded in justice, mercy, and love. 
The law is also a description of God's purity and his holiness. And you see that in these weird laws about this food is clean and that food is unclean. There's a law about how to get rid of mildew. That, that one's very helpful, by the way. And the purpose is to show that God is pure. God is holy. The problem is we aren't. We can't keep that law. And so something needs to be done to atone for that. Because if God just overlooks all the pain that our sin causes people and their sin causes us, if God just looks at that pain and goes, ah, you know what, eh, let's, just, let's just call it a good, let's just call it good, let's just, eh, that's good enough. Yeah, you know, and you're not Hitler after all, keeping that bar high, you know. Well, then there's no justice, right? So God sets up a temporary remedy. The priest would take a lamb and symbolically place all the sins of Israel on the lamb, sacrifice it, symbolically paying the price for all of Israel's sins. Well, after 40 years of preparation, God gets them into the promised land where they are uh, ruled by leaders called judges. But then they ask for a king, which hurts God because God was their king. And so God says, are you sure, you, are you sure about that? Because a king, a king is going to force you to pay taxes. A king will start wars. Did I mention the taxes? When our kids were little, my wife and I would usually take a bite or two out of their candy, and we would say to them, we're teaching you about taxes. <laughs> Never too young to learn, right? And the people said, no, no, we want to be like all the other nations, right? Give us a king. So showing again that we will trade our freedom for a little bit of security every time. So God says, okay, have it your way. And the first king, Saul, he starts out good, but then he goes bad, as kings are prone to do. Right? You know, fish, kings, relatives, you got to throw them out after three days. But the second king, David, is awesome. Greatest of all kings. He was passionate about God. In fact, one time he got so excited about God that he stripped all his clothes off down to his underwear and started dancing as an act of worship. We're going to do that today. <laughs> it's awesome. Right? Like Evan's got it all planned. It's going to be awesome. Stick around. You're going to love it. We're not going to do that today, right? And his wife saw him doing this, and she said, stop it, you're embarrassing me. And this is one of the verses I think shows that the Bible is historically accurate. It says, when David returned home, Michael, his wife, said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls, as any vulgar fellow would. I mean, does that sound like a married couple or not, right? <laughs> Historical accuracy right there. David was passionate about God, but he was also very sinful. He commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He murders her husband to cover it up. And that sets off a chain of events that destroys David's family. His son launches a civil war against him, and David dies a broken man. Then his son Solomon succeeds him, but then after Solomon, the, king, the, the kingdom is split in two. The ten northern tribes forming the state called Israel, the two southern tribes the state called Judah. And as centuries, over the centuries, kings come and go for several hundred years. There were glimmers of hope. Some of those kings were good. Most were not. Worshiped idols, child sacrifice, you name it. But God never gives up. And he is patient. So for several hundred years, God sent prophet after prophet to call the people back to himself. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea. But they don't listen. So eventually God decides that the only way to get their attention is if something terrible happens. So he allows the Assyrians to conquer them, the, the ten northern tribes, and wipe them out in 722 B.C. And for a while Judah saw that and they kind of got their act together. But then they also disobey God. And through the prophets, God says, I gave you the land and made you a nation so that you could spread my better way of living to the whole world. And you're not doing it. 
And over and over, God has two complaints against them. One, they worship idols. Two, they neglect God's commands to care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant in their midst. And because of that, God says, you don't get to be a nation anymore. I'm taking the land away from you because you're not using it the way I intended. And in 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem and take the Jews into exile for 70 years. You know, it's interesting that when the Israelites were slaves, God fought for them. But when they lapsed into idolatry and neglected to care for the marginalized, God fought against them, showing that he is not a tribal deity. He is on the side of mercy, justice, and love always. Well, after 70 years in exile, Babylon falls to the Persians, and then the Jews return to Jerusalem, but they come back different people. Never again do they fall into idolatry. The exile purged them of that. Because see, sometimes when bad things happen, God uses that to rid us of something, an addiction, a fear, a wound that's hindering us. Eventually, they're conquered by the Greeks and then by the Romans, and for another 400 years, God seems silent. No prophets, no leaders. But all the while, he's working with individuals, supporting, sustaining, and encouraging. And the Old Testament ends in defeat. Political defeat, to be sure, but spiritual as well. The Old Testament hammers home the point over and over and over again. On our own, we cannot follow God's law. On our own, we will run away from him all the time. But God never gives up. So at the height of the Roman Empire, in a nowhere village called Bethlehem, a baby is born in a barn to a poor, unwed, teenage, homeless mother. And it's the same story we saw with Moses. An evil king is commanding all the babies to be killed. 400 years of seeming silence. And at first, all God does is send a baby. Because you see, when God starts to deliver us, sometimes it starts small and we don't see it at first. But Jesus grew up. He teaches, he preaches, he does miracles. See, there has been this tornado of love building in the Father this whole time. And through the Old Testament prophets, he was calling people back to himself. But they weren't listening. So finally God comes himself in the person of Jesus. It is the ultimate, if you want something done, you've got to do it yourself move. And Jesus is like nobody else. He hung out with prostitutes and, 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 and white-collar criminals, the Bernie Madoffs of their day. He made a terrorist one of his disciples. And the only people he ever yelled at were who? Religious people, right? Which means if Jesus were here today, he'd be hanging out with the poor and the terrorists and the pornographers, and he might very well come here and yell at us. And we got to take that seriously. That is how radical he is. And we should not and we dare not tame him to suit our spirit of religiosity. He's good, but he is in no way nice. Well, the religious leaders call him a blasphemer. The Romans worry he'll start a revolution. So together they crucify him. And while he's on the cross, God pours out his punishment for all sin, for all time on Jesus. The ultimate lamb of God sacrificed to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. And so on a Friday afternoon, Jesus dies at the very hands of the people he came to save. But God never gives up. So three days later, he rises from the dead, showing that now there is nothing that we need to fear. The cross is more than just Jesus forgive, paying our price for our sins. The cross is where Satan brought his A game, his special weapons, sin, suffering, death, shame, failure. The devil brought his best sauce and Jesus absorbed the worst this world can dish out and he conquered it by rising again. What suffering do you face? God will bring new life. 
What shame do you bear? God will bring new life. What deaths do you mourn? God will bring new life. What failures do you fear? God will bring new life. There is nothing, no one, nobody, nothing that can defeat you. Jesus showed the worst the devil can deliver is not enough to destroy God's purposes in your lives because he does his best work in graveyards. It may be Friday, but Sunday's coming because God never gives up. Amen. There you go. After he was raised from the dead, Jesus hung out for another 40 years, 40 days, descended into heaven, sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of all of us, to give us strength and power and courage and connect us to God. And then he got a hold of a zealot named Saul who persecuted Christians, changed his name to Paul, sent him around the Roman world to spread the good news. And the world has never been the same since. And Paul and other apostles wrote letters to Christians all around the Roman world like Colossians and Romans and Ephesians and all of that, to explain the new way of living that Jesus makes possible. And within 30 years, there were Christians all over the empire. And within 200 years, it was the largest religion in the world and has never stopped being that large. And it didn't spread through conquest or politics. It spread because those first Christians lived a better story, had a bigger life, found a better way, formed a new society. They'd be thrown to the lions for their faith and they'd sing for joy in spite of it. Throw them in jail, they'd convert the jailers. Torture them, they would thank God they were considered worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. You can't stop those kind of people. You can't stop that kind of movement. Tyrants have tried for 2,000 years and it has always failed. It just kept spreading. They gave dignity to women. They put ethnic groups together in one community that had hated each other. And the world, the world believed that Jesus was raised from the dead because Christians were so radically different, so brave, so alive. Folks just wanted to know the Jesus who made it all possible. And finally, we arrive at the end of the Bible. We're in the book of Revelation. The Apostle John has a vision of Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, returning to make all things new and set all things right. The world as it was always intended to be. And we, his people, transformed into who we were always meant to be. And whereas Revelation, says to, uh, Revelation 7 tells us there will be a great multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So sorry, Bono, all the colors do not bleed into one. We retain our individuality, but we are found together in unity. And not a heaven with clouds and harps and angels with wings. No, 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 no. This earth without all the pain and suffering. And God will wipe every tear from our eye. And we will be his daughters. And we will be his sons. And he will be our father. It all began in a garden in the Fertile Crescent. And it ends with the whole world being transformed. Where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This grand story of our Father who passionately pursues a creation that is frantically running away from Him. And the Father did all of this for you. All 783,137 words of it. So read it. Study it. But more importantly, live it. Live this radical, amazing book about how God's goodness is running after you. His mercy is running after you. His love is running after you. And he will not let go. He will not give up. He will not give in. He will not give out. He will not grow tired of his pursuit of you. There is no obstacle he will not overturn. No setback he can't overcome. No hardship he won't endure. No shadow he won't light up. Mountain he won't climb up. Wall he won't tear down. Lie he won't kick down. Running after you and running after me because of his persistent, insistent, consistent, relentless, reckless, overwhelming, never-ending love of God for you and for me.
And even if you are not looking for the Father, the Father is looking for you. And he calls you by name and reminds you who you were. And he says, I have been running after you your whole life. And I know. I know the enemy has convinced you to do bad things. But you are not a bad daughter. You are not a bad son. You are mine. And I am your father who loves you. And I have come to find you, to take you to be with me. Because you see, God never gives up. Not on me and not on you. So Jesus, thank you for that. And I know right now in this room, there may be some of you who have never officially and formally said to Jesus, I want to follow you. If you want to do that now, just in your head, pray this prayer along with me. Just agree with this prayer. Jesus, thank you that you never give up. Thank you that you have followed me my whole life, even when I wasn't looking for you. And Jesus, I want to be found by you. I want you to be my leader. I want you to be my forgiver. I want to give my life to you and live the adventure you have in store. If you prayed that prayer and agreed with that prayer, now you're a Christian. And you just need to do one other thing. Before you leave today, tell someone, someone in the band, one of the pastors, one of the prayer ministers, someone. Because we'd want to just help you take your next steps. For the others of us in the room, maybe we've been running away from God. We are prone to wander, all of us. So maybe pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I confess I run from you all the time. But I don't want to. So today, right here, right now, the other things I've been chasing after, grades, jobs, popularity, money, whatever it is, I'm going to stop. I'm going to turn. Jesus, I want to be found by you. I'm yours. Thank you. Amen.